You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. My wife and I have lived here since uh, lived in Mountain Brook and last since 2012. And uh, our children are, I'm not going to offer a lot of practical advice when it comes to these things because my own children are three and not yet one. So when it comes to a lot of the family stuff, I won't be, won't be talking too much about that. Um, but it's really great just to be opening up to talk about living counterculturally just in, in general and talking about what it looks like in the scriptures in particular. Um, I was reading the biography of Frank Barker. You may know of Frank Barker as the founding pastor, retired pastor, still living, of Briarwood Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham, an absolutely amazing person. He says growing up, uh, his only aspiration in life was to be one of the boys, just to be one of the boys. Um, his conversion to Christ meant that he was anything but ended up being one of the most effective evangelists of his generation, planting one of the largest Presbyterian churches in the country and being an absolutely globally international figure. But he said that aspiration was just to be one of the boys. Uh, I thought that was, it was interesting thinking about that compared to how I grew up. Cameron mentioned I grew up on a farm in South Dakota. Has anybody heard of tall poppy syndrome or some kind of similarity to that? Okay, the idea is any flower that begins to grow too high Somebody comes in and just chops it off, okay? Anybody who sticks out gets punished for that. Anybody who's, who's different. Uh, that was a little bit of why I don't live there anymore. Uh, I was one of those people who stu stood out too much. Um, my family was in a lot of ways as well. Um, but it's interesting that no matter where I've, where I've lived, whether it's um, Chicago or New York or here in Birmingham, there's still generally that same expectation. There are certain social pressures. It doesn't matter how much money people have or money people don't have. It doesn't matter how much education they have or don't have. Generally speaking, a lot of us, we just want to be able to fit in. We just want to be able to fit in. It's a very natural human instinct. Uh, you think about that, though, and it doesn't seem like that's the way things would be today. It doesn't seem like that because, after all, all of the marketing all of the marketing that we face, and I think that's probably the cultural catechesis of our era, are these marketing messages that we, are, that we see all the time. But the marketing messages are consistently, have it your way, just do it. I mean, it's all about exalting the individual who does things differently. So you'd think in one sense that this culture would actually be conducive toward living counterculturally, living differently, but then again, even that then becomes the cultural standard. Everyone is trying to do it their own way. Everybody is trying to stand out. Everybody is trying to be a rebel. So even by trying to stand out, we end up conforming. Everybody is doing their same, their same thing. Everybody wants to be unique. And so our children especially end up with these very mixed messages that they're meant to be independent and they're meant to develop that independence and they're meant to, to stand out and to pursue their own dreams and they can be anything they want to be and yet we also expect them to fit in. And I think that's one of the most natural human instincts. I think, when our, I think our children understand very much that we want them to fit in. I think as parents, we, 
we imagine, we, we kind of blame this on our kids. Like, well, they just, they're, they're, they want this because all their friends have it. No, oftentimes when the, when the child asks us for that smartphone or whatever it is and whatever stage you're in there, they know that we want to give them whatever they ask for because we want them to fit in, because we don't want them to be that different from their friends. We want them to be able to be part of that in-group and to have these friendships and not to, be, not to stand out. So the problem with our children when it comes to are they going to be able to stand out for Christ and be able to make those decisions that are in keeping with our faith is often more of a question for ourselves. Are we willing for our children to not have perhaps the social standing that we think they should have, the popularity that they should have, that they're not necessarily going to fit in? Jen Wilkin is one of our writers at the Gospel Coalition. She talks about how we need to raise alien children, children who understand from early on that they're not going to fit into a fallen world. For living for Christ, they're going to have to live differently. Have lived, lived differently. This is a difficult dynamic, though. Jen's ministering in Dallas, Texas. A lot of similarities here to Birmingham. It's a little bit different, though, when you're in a culture. I mean, coming from where I was in Evanston, Illinois, or outside of New York City, it, if you're a Christian, you have to you understand this in basic ways because you're not going to get any help from the culture in, in these ways. So if they're going to have any kind of demonstrative faith, it's going to be different. It's a different dynamic here, obviously, in the Deep South, in part because there's very few people who aren't going to claim Christ. There are very few people who aren't going to claim at least some kind of church affiliation, at least some kind of religious affiliation. But the, the interesting thing about that is I find this fairly consistently living here compared to other places. I don't find anybody where Jesus isn't on the list of priorities. I don't find anybody where he isn't on the list of priorities. It's just he's very rarely at the top of the priority list. So there might be money or success or social standing or recreation or something else ahead of Jesus, but the consistent message we see from Scripture is that Jesus is not ever going to be content with being number two or number three or whatever else. If he's not first, he might as well be last. He might as, might as well be last. And that's what we see then. And I want to look, if you, if you have a Bible or whatever, you can flip to it, Matthew 19, 16 to 30. <clears throat> this is a very common story. So even if you don't flip to it, it's a, it's a very common story. It's the story of the rich young man. And I want to I want to look at this from a little bit of a different vantage point because something struck me as pretty different and surprising when I was reading reading this story again in preparation for this message. So uh, Matthew 16, uh, 19, excuse me, 16 through 30. Read here from the English Standard Version. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. I said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. He had great, great possessions. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So again, a common passage, one we've heard many times. And I think precisely because we've heard it so many times, it can be easy to let its force be blunted. Let its force be blunted. The impact of what Jesus said there to be blunted. Here's the thing that struck me as so interesting this time around. The rich young man is the kind of child we're trying to raise <laughs> in this community. That, that's, that's the fascinating thing. He asks spiritual questions. I mean, he takes it upon himself to ask the most important question you can possibly ask. I mean, what, what do I need to do to have eternal life? I mean, if, you're, if your child, no matter how old they are, if they came to you and said, Mom or Dad, what do I need to do to have eternal life? You'd, you'd feel like you'd really accomplished something as a parent. I mean, that was exactly what you're asking for. Um, and then furthermore, Jesus gives him a very strict standard here of all these things. Has, have you done all of these things? Absolutely. Absolutely I've done these things there. It's the amazing thing. I mean, this is an upstanding young man. He's become the parody of so many different messages over the years, um, but we miss the, for, miss the force there that he's actually the kind of person that we are in many ways trying to raise. And yet Jesus perceives his heart, and so he asks him to do the one thing that he's not willing to do, which is to cast all of his trust and all of his faith on Jesus Christ himself, on his grace alone, by which, is the, by which is the only way any of us can be saved. And what Jesus asks this man to do then, to show that faith, demonstrate that faith, is to sell his possessions. It doesn't mean that it's a mandate for everybody there, but it's because Jesus perceives what's going on here, that, that religion for this man was something that was useful and something that he was willing to engage in, but not something he was willing to give anything for. And therefore... Um, it made no difference in the end, ultimately, to Jesus. So, Jesus says then still that there are, it is possible, it is not impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but why is, how is it possible? It's possible by grace, but that's the exact thing that the rich young man has a struggle with. And that's part of what it means then to be, live counterculturally. I think, when I think about just many possessions, or I think about wealthy communities, things like that, we have to relativize it, biblically speaking, because anywhere you live in the United States, you're going to qualify for this. really does not matter. I mean, the United States in general, we are the wealthiest people who have ever walked this earth. So it doesn't matter if you grow up on a farm where I did or now in English Village or anywhere in between. We're, this is basically just about all of us there. So what is it about modern life? What is it about modern life that makes it so difficult for us to live counterculturally? 
What is it that makes it so difficult for us to live counterculturally? I think we have a problem of, of two things then. We have a problem of grace and we have a problem of trust. We have a problem of grace and we have a problem of trust. The problem of grace is that despite the fact that we have inherited many advantages from scientific advances to wealth to entertainment to all these things, we still have an ethic that more or less teaches us that whatever we have, we have earned. Whatever we have, we've earned. We deserve it. When something goes wrong, we feel like this shouldn't happen to me. This is a new concept as of the last few generations. Previous generations would not have reacted this way. Why do bad the questions of why do bad things happen to good people would not have made a lot of sense in certain previous generations because bad things happen to all people. But it doesn't matter. I mean bad things happen to all people. But we have this expectation that 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 we have earned these and we deserve certain things and therefore the concept of grace of receiving salvation as a gift so that no one can boast is very difficult for us than to live counterculturally there. Then we think this is another challenge, then we have a problem of trust. The problem of trust comes and I think no matter where what kind of what your experience is like, you have probably seen this. You've either seen it in yourselves, you've seen it in your family members, you've seen it in your neighbors, your friends. The more you have, the more you worry about it. The more you have, the more you worry about it. The more anxiety comes to make you think you must preserve it. That could be your health. It could be your family. It can be your possessions. You think you, the more anxiety grows. That's been one of the most astounding things to me, for me in living different places and living kind of up and down the economic spectrum is that that pattern just holds for people no matter what. The more they get, the more that they need to have. It's like what they always say about drugs. You, you get hooked on something, but then you need higher and higher doses as it goes on to get the same effect there. So we have a problem of grace and we have a problem of trust, which enters into our relationship with God, of course. Certain things that we're not willing to do, certain thing, prices we're not willing to pay, certain places we're not willing to go, certain things we're not allowing our children to be able to do because we struggle with grace and we struggle with trust. This was a fact of life for so many previous generations, as I said, because they didn't have options. People get sick. People, I mean, of course that happens to us as well, but it's a different experience. I think you understand what I'm getting at there. We have such confidence, especially in a medical community like this. We have much reason and thankfulness for confidence, but we have such confidence that we can fix whatever comes wrong to us. So it's difficult when you read the Bible because the Bible then feels like this foreign world. It feels like this absolutely foreign concept to us. Jesus says, could not be more clear about this message that in this world you will have much tribulation. You, you, have, you have the world there, a fallen world. We're going to get sick. We're going to, get to decay. We're going to die. Everything, Everybody we love, that's just part of a fallen world. The world, as Romans 8 says, eagerly awaits the redemption of all things by Jesus Christ upon His return. So we have the world. We have our flesh. These desires, these sinful desires that come from 
within and tempt us and lead us astray and lead us into sin. So we have the world, we have the flesh, and we ultimately have the devil. We have the evil one who prowls around looking for us to destroy. These are our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The amazing thing about Jesus is that even as he promises that in this world we'll have much tribulation, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. The world he has overcome. How has he overcome the world? He's overcome the world in his flesh, on the cross, crucified for sinners and resurrected unto eternal life and new life for all who believe. So he's overcome the world. He's overcome the, the, he's overcome it in his flesh and, and likewise he's then overcome the devil. He's overcome the devil whereas Israel had been tempted and gone astray. Jesus was the true and perfect Israel who when Satan tempted him was perfect and in every way and therefore he is tempted like us in every way and therefore able to give us help and to intercede on our behalf in the middle of that temptation as we see there from uh, Hebrews 4.15. So, of course, with Jesus, Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with me this is possible because I have done what is necessary for you to live for me and ultimately then to live a countercultural life. To live a countercultural life. Even the very imagery of Scripture necessitates an understanding here of a countercultural life because you don't have light without the darkness. Without the world being a place of darkness, you have no need for Christ being the light of the world and then telling us to shine that light on his behalf to others. Similarly, without a world that has lost its taste and that is decaying, there is no need for us to be the salt of the world, to preserve and to give taste to that place. So the very imagery that, that the scriptures use to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ necessitate a countercultural standard of living different for the world, but this is so key, as my boss Tim Keller says very often, to be a counterculture for the common good. To be a counterculture for the common good. To live differently in the world for the sake of the world. For the sake of all those that God loves. So I want to share a little bit about how this has worked in terms of Christian history. How, how has this been applied? How have these teachings here been understood by the church and how have they been, they've been implemented? Uh, the, the best source that I've found for this is a New Testament scholar uh, across the Atlantic named Larry Hurtado. Um, he's got a book called Destroyer of the Gods. It's a little bit of an academic book, but it's not very long. And he's, he's responding to some academic arguments that are actually, they'd be kind of strange to you. They were strange to me. But he comes up with one basic point when he tries to explain why did Christianity prevail in the Roman Empire? Why did it spread? Why was it so popular? If it was countercultural, if Jesus was teaching things like this, why did so many people believe it? Why did they follow it? What was happening there? He says this. These are the, these are the two concepts to keep in mind. He says Christianity was accessible and Christianity was odd. Christianity was accessible and it was odd. That's why it appealed to people. It was accessible and it was odd. Okay, first, how it was accessible. This means it was appealing to people. Christianity met needs that people had. It offered a better way of living than the rest of the world. It was countercultural, but in a way, people said, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I've been waiting for. A lot of these concepts are so basic 
to us because they're the world we live in because Christianity prevailed in the West. So they're a little bit difficult, I think, and sometimes to understand how appealing this would have been. How about this? So inaccessible as Christianity, the teaching of Jesus, appealed to, it offered, it was accessible because it offered answers to the human longing for freedom. Okay? For freedom. There was no concept, really, of, of freedom in that sense in the Roman world, whether you were of a different ethnicity or the wrong gender or the wrong political class or you were born in the wrong place, you were confined. You were very much confined to a certain way of life and with very narrow options. Christianity infused everything you did and everything you said with eternal importance. Therefore, it gave you a sense of meaning, it gave you a sense of purpose, and it gave you a sense of freedom for the individual in particular. And it wasn't just for each individual, but it was for any individual. It was universal whether you were, as the scriptures say, whether you were Jew or Gentile, whether you were Greek or not, or whether or not you were a man or you were a woman or you were slave or you were free. This was available. The, the faith, the faith was available to you. Grace was available to you in Jesus Christ. Christianity was accessible also because it, in appealing, because it gave you a spiritual family. It meant you could immediately connect with people all over the world that you had never met before because you had the most important thing in common, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It gave you a spiritual family, gave you a sense of belonging that you didn't get even in your earthly family. It gave you a mission. I mentioned this earlier, a mission and a purpose. You knew what you were placed by God on this earth to be able to do. And he told you exactly to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You had a mission, no matter who you were, how much education you had or not, how smart you were or not, how rich you were or not, you had a mission and a purpose. You had a loving relationship to a creator. This isn't how the ancient world saw the gods. The gods were like, us only worse <laughs> they, they were petulant they were always fighting they were chaotic so a loving relationship to a good and orderly creator was a very positive thing a very positive thing so much of our so much of this western worldview this is already baked in this is like the air that we breathe but it's because this is what this is what helped Christianity spread in ways that were very clearly speaking to the common good, to the common good. But at the same time, it was odd. Christianity was accessible, but it was odd. I mean, it was actually odd in these ways, but these were more widely seen to be positive ways. These weren't necessarily the ways that people would um, that they would that they would kill you over. These now are the ones that they would kill you over. Um, they didn't sacrifice to idols. Okay, they didn't recognize other gods. That's why the title of the book is Destroyer of the Gods. Okay, they just didn't recognize the legitimacy of any of these other gods. Now, why would that matter? I mean, these are idols. You make them with your hands. You knock them down yourself. I mean, that's what Isaiah says. That just you, you, you make them and you worship them. What's the point here? Well, the ancient world understood these to be actual gods. And by the way, if you want to go to the Far East today, you go to places like Taiwan, you can see this still today. Um, but they believed that these gods were essential to their communal, communal flourishing. If not everybody sacrificed to these gods, they would lose wars. 
They would have disease come. The weather would fail. The crops would fail. Famine. So Christians were a threat to the social order. They must be killed because they are the ones ruining everything. Probably the greatest piece of Christian literature ever written outside of the Bible uh, comes from Augustine. Uh, his writings about the fall of the Roman Empire. And the whole point there is he's trying to say the Roman Empire is blaming the Christians. The Roman Empire is collapsing because of the... I mean, this is the city of God, if you're familiar with that. But the Roman Empire is collapsing because of these Christians, because they don't honor the gods. They don't do what we're supposed to do. When, the, when we were still worshiping the gods, the true gods... We were conquering the world, and now these crazy, what would become the Germans, are you know destroying us all the time, ransacking us. It must be the Christians' fault. So it was odd. Or odd because they didn't sacrifice the idol and recognize these other gods. Odd because they didn't expose their infants. Odd because exposing infants was you have a child, you see that it's a girl, you don't want a girl, girls are expensive, girls can't help. You put your baby girl outside, she dies. That was a common practice. Christians not only didn't do that, they would go and they would pick up your baby girl. They'd go and they'd pick up your baby girl and raise her as their own to save her life. And when the plague would come, the Christians wouldn't flee. The Christians would stay. The Christians would minister to people. These were things that made them very odd. Very odd in that time. There's a letter... Uh, it's, it's called a letter to Diognetus. We don't actually know who Diognetus is. Um, the letter was written by a Christian apologist. There were a lot of these from Justin Martyr on in the second century, uh, defending Christianity to the Romans, trying to say this is why you should become a Christian, or at least this is why you shouldn't kill us, or why you should make us the state religion, things like that. This is a letter to Diognetus from roughly 397 to 401. So well after Christianity is actually recognized as the official religion in the Roman Empire. You can see both of these dynamics at play. Okay, so you can see how they are accessible and they are odd. In the first part here, I want you to see this Christian writing to understand that it's accessible in that to live counterculturally, you don't have to become Amish. You don't have to adopt a certain kind of dress, a certain kind of speech. You don't have to imagine that the year 1638 was somehow the most holy year of all time, therefore everything should stop in that year, or whatever year your particular um, you know, sect would, would choose to baptize with their dress or things like that. Um, so you can see here that how Christianity is accessible in the first part. He says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit, inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general. They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. So that's important there. To live counterculturally does not mean you have to do, you have to exactly eat these foods or live in this neighborhood or wear these clothes exactly. These things may be influenced by your Christianity, but they're not necessitated to live counterculturally. Here's where it's odd. Here's where they lived counterculturally and very odd. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. 
They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. Make sure you catch that. They share their meals, but not their wives. Okay? The Roman world was the complete opposite. They shared their wives, but they didn't share their money. They thought there was nothing inherently holy about sex, but don't touch my money. That was the Roman world. The Christians did the complete opposite. You can have my money, but you can't have my wife. And that was what the Christians did. That's how they lived counterculturally. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they live. They yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. They love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. Justin Martyr, one of the earliest Christian apologists, said, You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. And where did they get these ideas? I mean, it's Jesus. It's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what he did. And what exactly what was foretold in Isaiah 53 that the Savior would do. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. But no one can explain the reason for this hatred. I mean, Jesus understood the reason for the hatred. <laughs> he lived it himself. He said, you will be hated because of me. Because of my name's sake. I'll explain, I'll explain this in a second of how this, of how this works. But the Christian family, I think when we look at this, when we look at this, the Christian family is going to be accessible and it's going to be odd. It's going to be accessible and it's going to be odd because we're going to be welcoming. We're going to be open. We're going to be joyful and purposeful. Our families will be different in this, in this regard. <coughs> There will be something appealing, something that communicates clearly to our neighbors there. But our families are not going to be ultimate. They're not going to be exclusive. This is especially a challenge that I see fairly consistently, to not make the family ultimate and to not make it exclusive. By exclusive, I mean treating people inside your family in ways that would violate your your ethics and your conscience that you would not do for somebody else. Some ways, ways you'd protect somebody in your family that you would not uh, be commanded not to do there. But they're not they're not going to be struck struck as being merely self-interested to the exclusion of anyone else. And I think this is also really key: not just putting on a happy face for the world. Not masking all of the difficulties behind our doors, but being willing to be able to enter into the suffering of others as we allow them to be able to minister to us in the middle of our suffering. Each individual in our family will be treated with dignity and respect, but our parents will not make our children the objects of an unthinking veneration. And this is also key. We're not going to weigh our children down with all of our own personal hopes. 
and dreams. These are ways that our, our families will end up being different and how they will be odd. So if you model and teach your kids, as we mentioned earlier with the Great Commission, to obey everything Jesus commanded, I think it's important to see that our homes will be both a blessing. They'll be both a blessing and a joy to the world. That's very clear. There's going to be a tangible sense of blessing and joy. But at the same time, they're not going to fit in. They're not going to fit in. Um, one of my favorite authors is Fyodor Dostoevsky. He wrote a book that I, uh, it's called The Idiot. I think it's lost a bit in translation from the Russian. Uh, probably more apt, I guess it wouldn't have been as good to call it The Simpleton. Okay, but uh, that's probably more what it's like, The Idiot. But he imagines a, the main character is a Christ-like figure of pure innocence and pure love. In him there is no guile. There is no guile in him. What you're meant to see here, though, is how weird this guy is. Nobody knows what to do with him. He's so pure. He's so loving. He's so generous. He's so kind. The world just doesn't know what to do. And this is meant to show us Jesus. Because we know the world did not know what to do with that pure love. And they put him to death. One of my favorite songs is, I don't know if you guys sing it here. My church doesn't. It's called My Song is Love Unknown. Absolutely amazing, older, older uh, hymn. But it talks about, just like we see right here, no one can explain the reason for this hatred. Why this rage and spite? He made the lame to run and gave the blind their sight. Why could the world have hated Jesus so much for that? But they did, and he tells us to expect something similar there. My last point here is that you'll hear a lot today. One of the main reasons we're, we're, we're told that you can't live counterculture is we're told you have to live on the right side of history. Or the flip of that, you, can't, you don't want to live on the wrong side of history. You've probably heard that in many different avenues there. But the challenge is, by what standard do we judge that? By what standard do we judge the right side of history there? By what standard? Because the thing is, as, we, as you can look through history, it is in itself not moral. It, is, it doesn't give you a morality by saying that, because at certain points in history, the popular thing might have been to cover up abuse, might have been to cover up abuse, or to demonize an outgroup or to adopt a, a devastating or destructive new version of technology. So this question of living culturally or counterculturally or the right side of history or the wrong side of history, it doesn't have any, any place of, it doesn't have any moral fiber or any moral direction without Christ telling us what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and what is eternal. And that's the only thing worth living for in whatever counterculture. Fashions are always going to change. That's what they do. That's, that's the only definition of fashions. And so much of our morality today is fashions. But it's going to be here and gone tomorrow. We don't know what the next day will bring, but we do know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let me, let me pray. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to um, coming to save the world, coming to save us. We ask you, God, that you would give your spirit to be able to help us to live counterculturally. 
In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.